to another episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have my very special guest, Raywin Theobald, former message believer from New Zealand. Raywin, it's so good to have you on here to tell your story about your experience in the message and um, you know what's, what it's like going through the process of leaving the message. And as I understand it, you're in the mother church there, which is kind of a big deal. So I'm very excited to talk to you about what it's like being a message believer in New Zealand. Um, so just a bit about myself. Um, Raywin Theobald, I, my form, I was Raywin Cowley. So my mum, Shirley Cowley, was um, in the message, and that's how... So I was born into the message because my mum uh, came to the message uh, when I, not long after I was born. The fourth, I'm the fourth of five children. So my mum was a message believer. My dad was not. And um, so I was raised in the message, and I did eventually leave when I was 34, uh, which is about 22 years ago. But I feel as though only four years ago, once I discovered the uh, the help and the tools and the answers online that I feel like I've only left in some ways four years ago. So physically, 22 years ago I left, and more so four years ago, um, actually when my mum asked a question and I went and looked online and I found help that was there but wasn't previously there. That's amazing to be out 22 years and then suddenly realize that mentally you're still in it. I um, actually just spoke with another person recently who, the same kind of thing, I don't know if it was 22 years, but they had not yet processed it, and mentally they had left, and, and in fact, I believe that the person actually went back to the church for a period of time and noticed that things just weren't as they should be, and he, he finally escaped. <clears throat> so I'll, I'll be sharing that story here soon, hopefully. But Okay, uh, oh, nice. So we, we connect a little bit, you know, through the, through the support groups, and I know a little mm. bit about you and the, and the church, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about the Mother Church. What, what was it like being in the Mother Church? So I was raised in Gisborne Christian Fellowship. So the original pastor... I've only there was only that there's only been the two pastors, so one of the sons is currently the pastor, but the original pastor Reginald Searle, uh, he heard a tape, some at some point and of the message, and toured around New Zealand and advertised meetings of the seventh the prophet and um, people came and he had the real the the real tape. And so churches were set up around New Zealand because of Reg Searle's awakening, if you want. He was a, in the in a Baptist church and came, and he. So there, there was we met in a hall. This is before my time, I think, or my mum wasn't quite there at this time. So we met in a hall before the church was built. Land was donated from a family, and the the church is still where it is in Nelson Road. Um, so. We had a convention. The church was actually pretty good as a child. Um, I can remember really lots of happy times. I And even some of those photos I could, we do have of, um, it was a very positive, happy, there were big families and we had fantastic conventions where people just gathered. And this was a, something I I didn't know what to make of for a while. Why was it good and then did it go bad? And um, I could see how definitely it got bad or just 
more difficult, but it was actually, they had hymns, beautiful hymns, the redemptional hymns. Um, we had three meetings, you know, Sunday, tape night, and Sunday, a Sunday service, the tape night, and then they'd have a prayer meeting. Um, and some those hymns, I still love those old hymns, on the, the old rugged cross, Blessed Assurance, beautiful. Um, and it was a pretty big church. Um, so, and we hosted the Easter conventions for quite a while, and eventually the hall was built there. So it's about 1970, in 1973, um, we had a convention at my papa, my grandfather, we called him papa. He came to the Lord, so to speak, came to the message at a late age. And we had a convention in the cow sheds, the, like he had a milking shed area. So because the church wasn't there yet, we had this, it's always spoken of fondly, the 1973 convention and John Albert Morris Smith was his name, but Popper's Milking Shed. So it was alive. People came to our convention. So it went across the country, and I guess it brought people out of churches into this new thing, okay? So um, I remember it quite fondly, um, and uh, it was a good place for a time. And I suppose as a child, you don't pick up things too. But I do remember in the 90s, there was the splits come, like we had breakaways, this, the Perugia and the Seven Thunders, the thunder, Thunders, and you had to sort of, by that stage, my marriage had fallen apart, and it was, I couldn't understand why these doctrines were important. I didn't even know if God existed for me. I was so, you know, just so broken from what was happening in my life with my husband. So I didn't. The doctrines were just too complicated, basically. I was on survival. So it was a really good church. Um, it seemed to be. And it was often known as the Seal Church. You know, it's so funny. You, um, <laughs> The name almost sounded like you said Church of the Seals. I, I've realized it was the Church of the Searles, the, you know, the name of the people. But Church of the Seals, and you're talking about the Seven Thunders and the Perugia and all these different doctrines. We, um, I just recently spoke with a, a minister who's, who was in the message, and he left, and he became a preacher. And we were talking about how difficult it was of salvation in this religion, you know. In other churches, you leave with sort of a comfort that you, you know that God is there, God's protecting you, and you leave with an assurance from the church. But in the message, well, which doctrine is correct? Which church is correct? How do you understand salvation? You have to have this big, thick manuscript of just absolutely. How how in the world do I how do I survive in this world to make it into the next? And by the end of it, you're so so confused. What was that like for you as a teenager being in this church? Yeah, I had very difficult teenage years. So um, probably I would say that I gave my heart to the Lord when I was 10 and I was baptized when I was 12. And I feel as though that's when I was saved. And later, later I now feel as though I've been twice saved. I've been saved by coming out of the message in that way. I, I feel as though God saved me that way um, because it's so hard to see how deceptive it is and we know we've got people we know still in it so I feel like I've been saved twice but I will say that um, in my teenage years it was oh it was really hard what I stopped going to church probably when I was about 13 14 so I've been baptized at 12 
um, we were building a house. So my dad was building a house. So my brother stopped going to help, to church because they were helping dad build a house. So, and my older sister, I don't think she made a commitment. She was a bit older when the, when, because my mum has, um, when I was born, searched and found this church. So I only know the church and my mum being, um, I guess, church religious but she was a different outgoing person before she came to the church. So I stopped going to church probably about 13, 14. Um, and I will say we went to public schools, just the normal local primary, local intermediate, and a local high school. All five of us went to the same schools, so we weren't homeschooled or anything. Um, and so I was starting to go to the movies a little bit. It was very, very hard to because you'd been so told it was so wrong. But I was just trying to figure things out. It was really scary to do anything. Um, that Because if you did anything, you didn't know if God would forgive you for some of these things. They just were seemed uh, big sins, going to church, going to the movies. and But I did have a period where I wasn't going to church, and neither was, I'm not sure, I, don't, I know my brothers weren't, I'm not sure about my younger sister, I don't think she was either. So that was very hard for mum. Mum really struggled um, with her children not going to church. So we were always told the emphasis, huge emphasis on going to church. Church basically saved you. Going to church saved you. Um, you risked um, your salvation by not attending. It was just they meshed it together. Being saved was about going to church and keep coming to church. So um, my mum, it was a very difficult time for my mum because she was very fragile during that time and she needed to go to one of the deacons were very kind to mum and had a farm and mum would go and recover um, so that she could come back and sort of parent really. Um, Dad was absent. He struggled. He was very anti the message um, in those teenage years. You had to have make a choice between the two parents. They seemed to have two different values. Dad would even say, go and get a boyfriend, go to the movies. And mum would say, you know, wanting us to come to church, you know, you're, you're in danger of going to hell. You know, she was quite blunt with some of the the messages that she would say. So, um, but oh, I had a, so what brought me back to the Lord, there were two big traumatic things for me. One that was that I um, had a near-death accident in, when we were visiting the South Island, so I almost drowned, which brought me back to God. I'll go back to that. And I also got anorexia, which was very critical in this teenage time so um what brought me back to the lord was we were down near mount cook uh, which is uh in in the south island we're, we're in the north island of new zealand so we're having a tour uh, you know holiday mum dad myself and my younger sister and so i was 15 my sister would have been 14 and um while we were visiting this car park with ice a slope we were playing on it sliding up quite a large 100 metres so slope, um, I went right to the top, so did two other boys. Uh, we fell, this edge fell. We went into this icy pool where there was this water, waterfall. And ice, it was very fro very cold, and um, we were injured and under this cave-type area now, not knowing if it's going to collapse because we knew people were playing on it, lots of people. We didn't know if we'd been seen, so we managed to board. One boy helped me get out. I had a broken arm and shock we were both pretty shocked it was very very freezing 
and one of the uh, the boys actually d- drowned. I could we could see his I could see his body turning in the water. So he he probably hit his head. Um, so there was a a boy drowning. Well, he wasn't struggling, but so in this cave area, I am not going to church, and I am not right with God, so to speak. So I I I just can't risk I can't risk dying without I, I put my life right with God quietly to myself I ask God for another chance um, and when I get out I'll go back to church because I felt that's what they kind of indicated was this place how you got saved so I I asked please I, I don't want to die like this I don't want to die today I want to I, if when I get back to walk well, to Gisborne I'll come back to church there was no wow warm or any warm feeling or anything and it was just a commitment on my on my behalf because I was so um yeah, I guess so, in need, um, and I couldn't risk it. So we, they pulled us out eventually, and um, it was a pretty big deal, especially the boy Doubt dro- dying, unfortunately. So we were the boy, one was 16 and one was 14, I was 15. So I didn't actually know them, but um, so when we got back from our holiday, um, I did start to go back to church. That You know, that would be really traumatic for anybody. I don't care if you were in the in the message or away from the message, seeing somebody who died, that's, that's very hard to, hard to go through. And you're right. Many of the churches, they tell you that maybe not openly, but some of them insinuate that if you don't go to church, you're doomed to hell. And they associate salvation with the church and more specifically with the words of this man from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and the the place that you go to hear this man from the 40s, 50s, and 60s is the church in many cases. So I'm I'm assuming that you know after going through this, you went back into the church and you you dove in deeper into the religion and to the um, you know this was a divine healing religion. So you you dove into the you know the aspects of that. What what was that like after you made that transition back into the church? Well, um, I, I, I'm a, I felt like I'd given my word God, and I kept going to church. Um, we, as I said earlier, we had a really troubled patch in our family. The teenage years were very troubled. Uh, my brothers were having sort of car accident, drink driving, uh, there was a bit of drugs, and there were outbursts of violence, and it was very scary for a young, I was sort of just, a quiet, good girl, if you want. And I'm not saying I was perfect, but I was a good, quiet girl. So um, it was very scary. And um, my parents had some very turbulent occasion events. Um, As I said, mum was very fragile. She would go away to recover and come back. Um, And we were always told that if dad came to church, this is just touching back on that emphasis of churches, our family would be okay. If Dad came to church, it would fix everything. So we seemed to have all these troubles, and they didn't seem to have any answers. And Mum did have, I will say, there was an elder in the church uh, that Mum would go to for prayer, beautiful people that would just sustain Mum enough to keep bringing so she could come back. And my auntie was quite a support too. She, Mum's got two sisters, but the auntie that's in the church would try and help mum because it was a really tough, it was tough, these five kids. Um, and um, anyway, so as a result, when I was 17, I so at the end, near the end of high school, um, I developed anorexia. I didn't know what it was, but um, 
and I just started to control what I ate. Um, I, I basically, I hadn't linked it back to to another event of stuff. So bad stuff had happened in our in our home, um, and um, I didn't know how to process that. I didn't know how to tell someone. Nobody asked me the right questions. It was a big taboo subject in the Bible. It's in the Bible, all right, but it's just I. I knew that this big angry God, which is what they were sort of presenting all the time, there was just no way to um, to process what had happened. But I just knew it was bad, it was wrong, and it shouldn't happen. And I felt different. But I hadn't actually made the link between the eating disorder. So the eating disorder was just in some ways perfect because it ticked all these little boxes. It just happened. There was a little bit of a group of girls at school, but it kind of just helped me to I was basically crying for help it was a cry for help I could in this troubled patch I was able to control something which is my eating I was um, angry with my mum I realized this all of this later I was angry with my probably because she was kind of God not that she was God sorry I shouldn't say it like that but she was represented God my father was too distant to interact with so to speak but so somehow I was very angry with mum and I knew it was hurting her and she made huge efforts to keep me from it, to keep me to eat. She made a huge effort to, to, to bring me back to function, so to speak. So I was still working. I was would have had my first job at the Maori Fair. She would come to the lunchtime so I couldn't throw up my food. I could go back to work, so it was very annoying because I had to – so mum kind of just made herself – a problem to me so we realized uh, it sort of just crept up and it was also I hated myself because of what had happened um, and I I just felt different and if only if, if anybody knew what had happened they would never be able to love me and people only love me because they don't know so I took it all internalized I kind of tried to save the family by not telling anybody um, so it was just this Bad stuff had happened. I didn't know how to process. Nobody asked me the right questions. And I needed to trust enough to share too. So um, and I didn't know how that stuff affects you, how bad it is. I found out as you get that you have to verbalise it. You have to get counselling. You have to. You cannot keep those secrets without it harming you. So I, I didn't know that it was linked to the eating disorder. I just knew there's something wrong with me. And my, my thinking was really bad. Um, in terms of, I don't think I wanted to kill myself. I just hated myself. I didn't know why. Okay, and um, so there it came to a head where um, uh, my father and my mother sort of sat me down, which was probably pretty unusual, and I had to make a choice on how to get rid of. Um, so my dad wanted me to go to the doctor and go to the psychiatrist. There was a, an appointment booked. My mum was hardcore into this is a demon, um, this is how you, you can go to the psychiatrist, but it's not going to make you well. She was quite blunt. She didn't say that in front of Dad probably, but um, she was quite blunt that that's not going to work around, but this will. So um, And so how we knew what it was, I must say, just before I come back onto my answer there on my choice, that a lady in the church gave us a, gave mum a book. It was, um, I think it was called Crying for, Starving for Attention or something. It was, it was a pastor's daughter's story. And she, her story, and it was so helpful. I've got to say the relief when I was given the book, which helped me and it sort of gave me more ideas too. <laughs> um, but it, 
the relief of being diagnosed with what it was. Oh, this is what it is. I think it was such a relief to know what it was because I knew there was something wrong with me and I was too scared to trust. I, I, I just, I thought I was just going crazy because I hadn't made the link with what had happened, the trauma, so to speak. Uh, um, and so, and I was still going to church when I was, I got pretty thin, going to conventions and stuff. I was going to, we might actually have some photos here. I was pretty thin and um, I was, I didn't like it that I was hurting mum, but I just couldn't help it. This was just how it was going to get, it was being expressed. There was, I would say, there was just no way to express this. I was trying to tell them something. Something's gone wrong here. I don't know what's happened and I don't even know it's a, it's big bad. I, I didn't, I couldn't even put words around because we didn't give each we didn't give people words back then. I just knew it was bad, very, very bad. And God did not like this. It's in the Bible. And this big angry God just doesn't like this. I didn't, so I internalized it. And I kind of thought, well, unfortunately, boys get believed, but girls don't. So there was that. So, um, so it just got internalized and it turned into this eating disorder. It kind of ticked a lot of boxes. It gave me some control over what I couldn't control in the home too. Um, so I had this, I, I had to make this choice. So I, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but I chose what was the safer for me. Why I didn't choose the psychiatrist, the doctor, because my lack of trust with the outside of the message and doctors and anything, I thought I'd be banging on a glass window door. I'm okay now. I'm well. You've, you've fixed me. I know what it is. I'm okay now. And they wouldn't let me out. So my mistrust and terrified of not being able to be well and say, let me out somehow, I thought that they, they wouldn't believe me, I'm okay. I took the other option, which is to come forward for prayer. So Reg Searle, my pastor, said, you know, I needed to prepare myself for a week, which whatever that means. Um, and my position with God was I he was just this big, scary God, and I was I was unclean, and I, I, I just, I didn't even know if he cared. I thought I'd, I was unlovable. So, but I, that was the better of the two choices. Um, so I went forward for prayer at the end of this particular service. I don't remember doing any prayer preparation because I was just in a really low place. God was not friendly and good. Um, so they laid hands on me and delivered me of this evil spirit. Raven's come forward for prayer. She's got a, an eating so, so it was this big kind of embarrassing, ugh, okay. Um, and so I'm supposed to be better, just like that. And that's one thing they did. They put that healing back on you. Um, so I wasn't better. Nothing had changed other than everybody now knows. And I'm supposed to be better. So the, the worst part about that part was that I had to fake a healing, so to speak. I, I'm supposed to now eat. I'm supposed to put on weight. I was just, it, I hadn't got better. I needed to share what had happened is what was going was gonna to heal me. But I didn't know that either. And I don't even know it's connected to the, I just know something's gone very wrong in my head. I am, and I knew there was something wrong with me, but I, um, and I didn't know how to fix it. Um, so I, I just stumbled along after that. I remember my younger sister catching me throwing up food in the shower because I'm trying not to eat as much food still, trying to get away with it somehow. And um, she must have heard me, and she caught me, and she said she was going to tell mum. And I remember begging her. That was one of my low patches, begging her, please, 
please don't tell mum. So I just, the, that was now the pressure. And I've got to say the stress. I'm supposed to be well. Um, I wasn't well. I wasn't well. So I sort of just limped along. I, I, don't, I, I can't remember. But anyway, what, how I did get well, I met my husband. And I shared my story. And I told him what had happened. And what a hero he was. He listened. He was angry. Thank you. Thank you. And partly why I loved him, because he was angry for on my behalf. I said, no, 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 let's not do it. Just, just the, he just needed to be angry. He was, And he shared his story. He had a very troubled upbringing too, uh, different because he wasn't in the message. So I shared my story. And even mum said, man, you seem to get better when you got married. So, um, so it was just by sharing. And then I eventually, as a bit later after uh, my marriage ends, I do get counselling for things that have, these sort of things um, but it was enough just to share my story with him and um, just to um, be believed I think the fact that he was angry um, that just seemed to unlock something there okay so um, and like I said I did I, I, I was reluctant to get any counseling ever because I'm still in the message for a good I don't leave till I'm 34. And I'm, I got married when I was 19, and then one year later, on, almost on our anniversary, we have our first our son, and so I'm 20. He's one month old at my 21st, so I'm almost 21 uh, then. So, um, but yeah, sharing my story with my husband at the time is what broke that eating disorder. You know, it's really difficult for children in this to be torn between having to have the positive confession that, you know, you're, you're sick, but I have to confess that I'm not. I have to pretend that I'm not. It, it turns into a make-believe game in many cases. But for me, my mother was dreadfully ill for a large part of my childhood. In fact, she was bedridden for most of my high school. And I've locked most of those memories away, but I, I do remember her going through the, the healing lines and, you know, being prayed for. And then the, the quote is, sister, go home and accept your healing. God has healed you. Well, then you go home and you watch, you know, watch the, the thing continue, the illness continue. And you're wrestling with it because if you actually listen to the content of the sermons, they're telling you that the reason for the reason people don't get healed is because their lack of faith or their unbelief. And then unbelief is sin. So therefore you make the leap to you're a sinner because you don't believe because you're sick. And it, all of the burden of this is on your shoulders. I can't even imagine what it would be like, you know, going through what you went through and then, you know, going through that and, and then getting married. I'm sure that was a difficult transition. The only way you got out of back then, the only way you left your home so to speak in the message you either you got married you didn't really we weren't really encouraged to go flatting so you stayed under your father's household even though my father wasn't in the message so to speak um we there was still that sort of expectation so part of it was to get get married i was keen to get married and have children um and i thought things would be better great because i felt like it had been a pretty troubled home as I often say, it was an unsafe, unhappy home, um, especially those teenage years. So I meet my husband. He's basically my hero when I, because he's just 
I guess, that response. Um, and he had a very troubled background. Um, so I didn't, he wasn't in the message. He wasn't born in the message. So he had a great conversion at one of those Easter conventions. And so um, my mum took a shine to him. She did take a shine to people that were sort of the troubled down and out type. And so I suppose I took a risk by marrying, marrying someone who wasn't raised in the message. But like I said, I felt like I was marrying my hero at the time. Okay, unfortunately, he did become my enemy pretty quickly. And But um, so we got married and he had a great conversion. And so we had no, um, we didn't even hold hands. So he was very respectful like that. Uh, and I took it seriously. You get one chance pretty much to get married. And they told us, you prepare yourself for marriage, you go and put things right. So I went and put things right with that family member that, uh, so I went and said, I forgive you, and da, da, da. And I did my very best to put things right because they did say that it was always sort of preached, and I think it's in the message a lot, We, if a woman hasn't declared something, she can be put away, or the husband has a right to divorce her because they haven't told all their story of you know, things that have happened. So I was very careful to, no, no, do everything they told me to do before you got married, okay? And we did not even hold hands. We talked and shared, uh, but no, we kept it very respectful. No, kiss, nothing. Very respectful. And like I said, it was just incredibly. So we were only engaged for three months, Um and they got married in the November, and then a year later, um, we have our first son. Oh, well, we've only got one son, sorry, <laughs> our son. And um, a lot goes wrong really quickly because 18 months later, we have our daughter. And by so my husband was at church as we dedicate our son, and 18 months later, he's not standing at the front of the church with me as, as we dedicate our, I dedicate our daughter. It's all happened really quickly. And so I was in shock for some of that because I didn't know what had happened because we were really on track there. So for a long time, a little bit into this, we separated when I was 23 and I had, by then I have a two-year-old, two-year-old son and an eight-month-old daughter. And, um, so we were married for, or together for just over three years. We didn't actually get divorced till about 20 years later. He didn't want to get a divorce, and I couldn't kind of get one. What was that? So we were divorce was this big, bad thing, and women weren't supposed to go and get one, and even if we were separated that long. So it was like, a, you know, he needed to divorce me. You've done that, you know. So I'll get to what happened to the marriage. So it was... It was great, and then something happened, and I didn't know what had happened. It was as if, um, as we are facing each other talking, John, you're facing me, we're talking to each other. It was as if all of a sudden you turned your back, and I'm talking to you still, but you've got your back to me. Something shifted suddenly in there, and I didn't know what it was. And he turned back to, he was quickly, he stopped coming to church. He had started having an affair. Um, he even has another baby in the same year as our daughter's born, that 1990. So there's a bit of a crossover with the pregnancy. Um, so I I just didn't know what had happened. It, and I knew our marriage was falling apart, and so soon. And it was as if, um, I've got my hand up here, as if you're trying to carry sand 
in your hand and it's slipping. Something very precious was slipping away. I took this very one time to get married. You don't get any more chance. I'm a woman. You only get one shot in the message pretty much. Yeah, that's about right. At least if you're a woman in the message, you it's one shot or you're, the rest of your life is ruined, basically, if you're female. So you, you mentioned that he turned on you. He suddenly changed. Are you aware what caused that change? So what has happened is he, he and my cousin have gone to, you could take questions and go to the office to ask questions and the deacons were there as well. Um, and so my husband was had asked questions. He, I've checked with him later and he said it was about salvation. Like, um, so the pastor was saying, um, so yes, I have saved all these people, meaning the congregation. And my husband said, um, so, so you're God, are you? And he said, he got so angry that he, that he asked the deacons to escort my cousin and my husband out of the office. Now, I didn't, when I pestered my cousin, this is what my cousin said for a long time, he wouldn't tell me for a bit. I pestered him, I need to know, I need to know, please, please tell me. He said, You won't believe me. You won't believe me. I said, Please. So, my cousin told me this conversation of what happened way back. It was a conversation we had very near the time we separated because my husband wouldn't sort of, he was, he just couldn't converse. He was gone, basically, gone, left, gone. So this conversation happened right near the time, near, nearer, that they were escorted. Two of the sons escorted out, but one of the deacons who wasn't one of the sons refused to escort them out. It's the same deacon that had the farm that used to take mum to recover. So, um, but, so they had these questions. I don't know what my cousin's questions were, but they were asked, had scheduled a time, asked some questions, and the pastor got really, really angry. I think that's one of the biggest problems in, in this message, right? You, if you ask a question, they see it as a threat, and then entire families are cut off just simply by asking a question. I know whenever I asked my grandfather the questions that I asked, and you know they were fairly simple questions, he, I was obviously excommunicated at that point, but what was interesting is he had never spoken to my wife or my children, and we were all cast out of the church, and we were turned over for Satan for the destruction of our flesh, I think is how they phrase it. But he had never spoken to my wife. She was just doomed to hell because I asked the question. Yes. So, yes, that was really challenging to ask questions. You just basically, you had to just only believe. Um, so the other thing I was, so I didn't know that piece for quite a while. So basically my husband, he changed and then I knew, obviously, I'm aware our marriage is on the rocks. He is leaving. He is disconnected from us in that short time between the two children being born. Uh, we actually lost another baby in this early separation time as well. But so I don't know why he's changed, not till after he's left for a bit. So I am, I go, My our pastor doesn't know how to fix, like with mum, our problems. He doesn't really know how to help with problems like that, family problems. I was probably one of the first people to have a marriage breakup in that our church. So it was quite unusual, so to speak. And um, so I went to this, the, the elder that my mum used to go to, to get prayer and support through, the same person, same couple. So what do I do? I think he's having an affair. There would be a phone call and then he'd leave. He was still coming home every night, but very late. 
and he just was different and distant and this girl was hanging around all the time. So this elder told me what to do, go and confront her, tell her you're trying to save your marriage. Um, so she was only probably about 19 and we're, well, we we're about 22, 23 when he actually left. So we're all pretty young. So anyway, this girl, um, she was just a bit younger than us. So anyway, he's hanging out with the girl. People are telling me that. Um, so I am, I remember being not pretty much pregnant with our daughter, nine months pregnant. So that would be May when she's born and we're at, we haven't moved to our, our, fa our, um, home we're renting so I know which house we're at we're about to leave because we got, she was born a day after we moved so I go and confront she comes I went to her home this is what the de the um, hour told me what to do and I'm so grateful it was great advice to confront it and um, it was hard to do I was really scared but my marriage was at stake and I knew I had to look my children in the eye one day they were only little toddlers at this stage or one wasn't even born so I I need this was really this is really important this is I, I I knew something was at stake here so I confronted but she wasn't home so she got home and then came back to our house and my husband wasn't home so she came on to my daughter I remember being very very pregnant and she took but basically stood at the door and looked me straight in the eye and said how dare I go around to your house and you're only married by a piece of paper and so-and-so, that's my husband's name, he will see whoever he wants to see. So she was just really sassy. And I remember I just was just, I had nothing to say. She said, we're only married by a piece of paper. So I told my husband what had happened when, and he was mad with me because I had upset his friend. So there was a patch there. And then we moved house because our daughter's born a day after we moved. So I know when, and she just wouldn't go away. He wasn't, he, he, he denied it. And you know, I was going crazy because I didn't have proof, proof. He was having a fear and they were actually having a baby. She carried really small. So later that year, I had a baby in May. And they had a baby in November. Um, but they fung-eyed her out, adopted to, you know, family friends. So And they stayed together and had another one. Actually, he goes on to have seven more children with different, um, uh, two different women so anyway, I've confronted them and I just had to wait. And there's a scripture in Ephesians. It's the, um, it says, having done all to stand, stand therefore. And I just, he just denied it. I couldn't prove it, prove it. It continued. He just wouldn't leave and I couldn't leave him because what if he's being set up? What if he really was innocent? So that was a really dangerous time because it was true. And it came to the, the family that adopted that little child came and one day they, about two years after the little child's about two, came to my doorstep and said, hey, can we have some photos with your children? Because they're sibling. I said, wow, it is true. You know, so it came to light. But he denied it to my face. And I just hadn't come across that. Um, yeah, he had no interest in saving this marriage. He had changed. And what had changed is that bit in the office but he never came home from that, those questions in the office and said, this has happened. I just had no knowledge of it. I don't know what I would have done because I was hardcore into the message. I really believed it. And so I don't know what it would have done. He didn't give us a chance. So that was a piece I didn't have. I just knew he changed. He was lying. He was out. He would come home. And then he was away one night. That was the night that the, the, their child was born. He was actually there supporting the couple because they're going to give it to family friends that 
couldn't have children. So it all comes out to later, but I don't know. And later, then after, so we have our baby in May. Their child's born in November, oh, December actually, December. And then they, he leaves in the January. So um, so that's when I'm 23, a two-year-old and an eight-month-old. So I don't know what's gone wrong. And I'm in some sort of shock. Um, and, you know, for a long time, I, 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 I just couldn't believe it. I just, I really wanted more children. And this took me a very long time to accept because I really believed you should have children with your husband. And there's a... There's another scripture, it's Rachel is talking to Jacob in Genesis and she says, give me children or I'll die. And oh man, I could understand <laughs> that. You know, the um, how they had the, the negative talk that they've said of woman in the, to woman in the message, you absorb all that. What I seem to pick up was that the only worth woman had in the message is to have children. To have, to be a mother was like, oh, it gave you value and worth and to have lots of children was even better. So I had this awareness, this concept that to to be valuable and my worth wasn't having children. So I needed more children and I just felt like two wasn't enough to change the world, you know, but I really believed that you have to have them with your husband. So I had this problem. He just wouldn't die. So I couldn't, no, I shouldn't say he wouldn't die, but <laughs> so I was trapped. In this, you've got this one shot, I've used my one card. I believe that. And it wasn't taken lightly. I fought to save it. I did what the elder said to do. I'm glad for that advice. Um, And we hadn't, this is why I was so angry with God. I was just, because I had done what they said to do. Before you get married, you do this. You don't hanky, but no, what we would say, hanky-panky, keep it clean, keep it pure, the the engagement. I put things right that I'd, I'd been very careful to prepare myself for marriage. I, Why had this gone wrong? What had happened? And I was in rage. I, was, I guess it was. I was in a rage for a long time. I was very, very angry. And I was a good Christian girl going to church, still in the message church. How do you process this now? So like I said earlier, how do you process that eating disorder, which was a result of that other trauma? But how do I process this? He's left me. He's so personal. He doesn't want to be with me and actually our children too. I can't even imagine what it would be like as a woman. You're right. The women get one chance and it's this weird double standard. The men in some churches in the message, the men can get married again because in some versions of William Branham's stage persona, the men could again. And, you know, obviously he, he helped his mother, his, his brothers get married several times. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be a woman and then go through something like you did where there was a really bad situation where it's not your fault. You're trapped into this life that you didn't want. And, you know, a person went astray. I can't even imagine what would, what would be like to go through that. What was it that was the turning point for you? What made you decide to you know, leave the message that you had been part of for so long. So I stayed for probably another 11 years. um, And I did get counseling in that time. And I left because of three reasons, although I didn't know, it was sort of a merge of these three reasons. 
One of the reasons I'm sitting in church and um, they shouted a lot at us. You know, that was one of the things that's just they shout in the sermons. And um, my son is 12 and my daughter's 11 because it's right near the end when, when we leave. And they're talking about be you separate from the world, even if it's family, be you separate from the world. Um, and during this sermon, my son turns to me and whispers and said, Mum, do they mean so-and-so? And he said his cousin's name because he'd been close, was playing with my his 13-year-old cousin who was my older sister's child who is not in the message. And I remember being so shocked at the time thinking, oh, wow, is it, they're actually listening to this. So I probably just whispered and said, I'll tell you later, you know. Um, so I, I realised they were listening to this. That was kind of a bit of a wake-up call. Um, and also I had... Um, this is what really probably bothered me, is that in the message they claim that you can only be saved from the being in the message, the bride, the message. Um, that's how you're saved. And I was aware that obviously I've, I was born into this and I was sort of aware that I don't know if I would have found this if I wasn't born into this. I, I was aware it was very strange, especially the serpent seed. I'm thinking, oh, you got to be careful when you share that one. You had to sort of prepare people for that one because, and you don't always share it straight up because it was so weird. I realized that, that, that Eve sleeping with the serpent was very unusual. Even though I could see in the message, it kind of made sense. So it was a tricky one there. But anyway, so I was aware that um, I don't know if I would have chosen this. I've born into this, and that's how I know about it. And I'd met so many good people through Play Centre, through the, my, put my children to the local Christian school, which was a, I consider it one of my, apart from leaving the message, that was the second best decision, was putting my children into the, the school. As I actually teach there now. So that was a really, so that I could they could be part of the Christian community, which helped heal. And so we were aware of people that followed Jesus and they seemed free and kind and, um, loving and so that was a bit of a mystery because they, they were supposed to be all hostile and no they didn't have any truth outside of our our church so if you could list one doctrine that you would say was the most harmful or destructive the one that impacted your life the most what would you say would be that one doctrine i would say that um because of the way that they spoke about women they seemed to just the message that we were deceived we deceived, and because of Adam wasn't deceived, but Eve was. So that we were easily deceived as women, and so it gives you uh, that you, you you get the feeling that you're never going to be able to discern things yourself. You're never going to be able to find truth. So I've always been thinking I'll never find the truth of things because I'm a woman, and I'll ha I'll need a man that'll have to show me the way. And I'll have to check what I have got, the truth that I feel I've found with a man. So that that self-doubt of because I'm a woman, I'm not going to discern, I'm not going to find the truth. And that inside you self-doubt because you're never going to get to the truth because you're a woman. So that's what they kept saying. That somehow I absorbed it. Um, and just one more, this is where I would say they taught us that the Bible, there was something wrong with the Bible. It doesn't work anymore on its own. And Jesus isn't enough. 
They taught us that. So my first introduction to Christianity was that oh, based on that, there's something wrong with the Bible. You're going to need an extra messenger, extra message, and Jesus isn't enough to save you. He worked perfectly fine up to when Brother Branham comes along. Now you need something more to be saved. That is probably you believe as you would. That's the first introduction in that text. It is so hard to unpack because they make it fit. It does fit when you're in there. The scriptures that they sort of fit. So probably the fact that they shouted at me as a woman, they shouted, they shouted, and the fact that they they told me that I can't discern properly because I'm a woman and I am easily led, easily just. That they're putting that on women, that is probably the most harmful because on top of all the other trauma and stuff and the fact that they tell you that there's something wrong with the Bible, all of a sudden now, unlucky us basically, we're going to need something more to the edge of the Bible, basically the voice of God, all of that second Bible, Oops. and they're going. we're going to need something extra to Jesus to be saved. That introduced to you, from such a young age, is so damaging because that's your first introduction, which is, that's, that's what I feel, those two things. I think one of the biggest things for me was realizing that they had essentially taken the role of the Holy Spirit and they had removed it from the Holy Spirit and given it to either William Branham or the preachers or the message in general. Where, where the Bible says the Holy Spirit will lead you and guide you into all truth, they don't want you to be led and guided by the Holy Spirit. You have to be led and guided by these men. And mm. once you realize they're leading you astray, it turns really problematic. For me, this was th this was horrific, what they had done, because they had usurped the authority of the Holy Spirit. Yes. So what really troubled me, and I would say it like that, that, that in the message there, God is too small. Your God is too small. Their God saves only those in the message, this narrow way. And I was wanting to give my heart to a God because I took that, I'm leading my children somewhere. I took that really with such, uh, I didn't take it lightly. I need to really believe this. I'm leading my children. I, and I wanted to give my heart to a God fully. And I, I just, I, I can't give my heart to a God that doesn't make salvation open and free to all. You mean to tell me that I, that people across this whole wide world are only saved if they find the message across the whole world and are saved by following this prophet? That's the only way they're saved. It was narrowed down and all these good people, so that unfairness, was what troubled me. I don't want to give my heart to a God that's not fair. It needs to be open up to everybody. I'm only here probably because I'm born into it. And I don't, I just, I turned, I felt like I was turning down salvation for me, risking it if you want to go and find and see. I want that God that's bigger and open to all. I, I can't give my heart to that God. And that's why I say in the message, their God is too small. I remember those feelings that you described whenever we started attending our first church. And in fact, we were at a restaurant and my wife suddenly looked around, you know, table to table. And then she suddenly bust out laughing. <laughs> I'm like, what's so funny? And she says, have you noticed? Look around us. And I looked around and 
there's just people, you know, Sunday afternoon, we're having dinner, and she said, the the people of God, the church of God, has just grown by several million people <laughs> because we were so we were so isolationist, right? Once I got a revelation of that gospel, you can't make a mistake there. That's the true Christianity. The signs and wonders are not supposed to be the emphasis, and they're supposed to be warning. They're a warning as well. In Matthew twenty four, we are warned about them. There'll be some good ones out there. Be careful. And then the. Galatians 2, where he's fascinated with visions and and, 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 what, and a false humility. I felt like that fitted him too. So um, those really helped me to see it clearly. But it hasn't been easy to see it. Um, it's very deceptive, the message. I, like I said, very smooth. It's very smooth. We were taught, we were misled to believe, because he, he would make these boisterous claims. He would say, I... I taught the same gospel that Paul, I taught the same message that Paul taught, and we're resting on that, right? Well, you don't critically think to examine, well, did he actually do it? And that was eye-opening when I started going through that, you know, realizing that this is not, it's not even the same religion as Paul had, you know, to be quite blunt. So, this has been great. I really enjoy our conversation. I, I want to know, though, if you had something that you could say to your former self way back whenever you were in the message, what would you tell yourself? What would I tell myself when I first left? So I'm 34 with a 12-year-old and an 11-year-old, and there's so few answers. I would say, good girl, you have done the right thing. You don't know it yet, but you've turned down the false gospel of the message. You've done the right thing. And I know there's so few answers right now, but the answers will come. The answers will come. You have done the right thing. And you will look back later, not too long later, but certainly now, 22 years later, and you will say that is the bravest decision you have ever done is to leave the message with so few answers. You have done the right thing. And I would say you will find the Jesus that you're looking for, the Jesus that wrote in the sand, the merciful Jesus, the Jesus that was kind to woman, the Jesus that understood why she was in that situation but and said, still said, go and sin no more. You will find the Jesus that you're looking for. You will find the big God that you are looking for. You are brave, and I can see that you're very grateful that your faith in God has survived and your children are doing well, and there's just nothing like being able to be free now with your children. Yes, exactly. I'm so glad you decided to share your story with us. The, um, you know, there's several people who watch these who are in a similar situation. They're, they're desperately wanting help, and they don't know how to get it. And some of the people are in the message, but I would say that a majority of the people who are seeking help have left, but they're in this weird state of limbo, like you described, where they're carrying the weights that the message has placed on their shoulders, and they'll carry them forever until they can unravel what what this message did to their head. So I would say you're very brave. You have escaped. You've done, it's a lot of work leaving the message, but it sounds like you've done your work. Thank you, John. Um, I'm just so grateful to have this opportunity because I've been, I've often wondered how can I help other people? 
Um, I've also wanted to have conversations that might help me, but I appreciate the work you're doing. You're doing a great work out there. And um, for people that are far away like me in New Zealand uh, and that don't have access to people that have come out and are willing to talk, you are doing great work, your team of people, and I really appreciate that what you've put online and the time, um, and I just a big thank you to you, and go well. Keep going and go well. Thank you very much, and God bless. Thank you. So glad to have you. If you've enjoyed our show and you want more information, you can check us out on the web. You can find us at william-branham.org. For an overview of the historical research of William Branham and the Healing Revivals, read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message, available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. 